Hey, go ahead and grab your Bibles and you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. I almost said Galatians, but we are done with Galatians. You probably shouldn't cheer after I say we're done with Galatians, but we are done. 13 weeks through Galatians and uh, we are picking up here in week one through our Advent series that we're calling One Story, One Savior. My friend uh, sent me this, uh, I don't know, it was some kind of a, a link that keeps popping up on Facebook or something to, uh, to this site where you can order what's called My Personalized Bible. And um, this is what it says. It says, My Personalized Bible, your name inserted over 6,400 times. And then it says this, the Bible will become alive for you as never before, right? And we laugh about that because it seems absurd and ridiculous. Um, but here's the reality of it. If, the, if that was true, right, if that was a good thing, and it's not, so you guys are all clicking on it like, that sounds good, I want to get that right now. But if that was a good thing, if the Bible was a book about us, it would be of no use to us. Um, because the reality is that the Bible becomes alive for us the minute we deny ourselves and become personally involved with its author. Not because we're inserting our name in it to make it some, sign of, some kind of an instruction manual or some kind of a self-help guide for how it is that we think we're supposed to live our life. The reality is that many of us don't need a personalized Bible because we just tend to personalize it by nature. We just do that. That's the, some of the problems that we have when we go to God's Word. Uh, a woman named Jen Wilkin, she's written some great books. Some of you, some of you uh, have read her books. She wrote about five approaches that we actually take uh, to God's Word. And so I'm going to read these five approaches that we have when we open God's Word. Maybe we've even been taught to do this. Um, but see if you fall into one of these categories and, and be, be honest with yourself as I read these things off. The first one that she sort of lays out is called the pinball approach to reading God's word. And this is what she says, you, you read whatever scripture you happen to turn to, right? So just close your eyes and flip the page. You ricochet around to various passages as the spirit leads, she says. Here's the problem with that approach. The Bible was not written to be read this way. The pinball approach, it gives no thought to cultural, historical, or textual context, or authorship, or original intent of what the author had in mind when he was writing this passage. So what happens, Jen says, is when we read it this way, we treat the Bible with less respect than we would even give to a textbook. I mean, imagine opening up like an algebra book and just like, just picking a page to start reading off of. Like if you're like me, it doesn't even matter if you start on page one. But the bigger point is that you would be lost, you would be confused, you wouldn't be expected to retain anything that you were reading because there was nothing in there that gave you context. That's the pinball approach. Maybe some of you guys do that. Secondly, she says, the magic eight ball approach. So some of you guys remember the magic eight ball, right? When you were kids, or maybe you still have one and you're, you know, you're doing that all the time, but it, it was supposed to answer your most difficult questions about life as a kid, right? But you're an adult now, so things have changed. Now you're wondering if you should marry Bob or that if you should get a new job or maybe you should change your hair color. So what do you do? Well, you give your Bible a vigorous shake and you open it up to a random page and you place your finger blindly on a verse and you read it to see if it signs point to yes, right? Here's the problem with that is that the Bible is not magical and it does not serve our every whim. So the magic eight ball approach, it, it misconstrues the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the word by demanding that the Bible tell us what to do rather than who to be. We mess that up a lot. 
Number three, maybe you take the, what she calls the personal shopper approach. You want to know about what it means to be a godly man or a godly woman or how to deal with self-esteem issues, but you don't know where to find verses about that because you haven't done what Big R has told you to do all these years, which is to buy an ESV study Bible, right? So what do you do? You let a famous author tell you what to do about that. So you buy a book so that they can do the legwork for you. Here's the problem with just reading books and never reading the Bible is that the personal shopper approach doesn't help you build any ownership or knowledge of Scripture. So kind of like the pinball approach, you kind of ricochet from passage to passage and you gain fragmentary knowledge of many books of the Bible even, but mastery of none of them. Maybe you take the, what she calls the Jack Spratt approach. This is where we engage in sort of what she calls picky eating with the Word of God. We read the New Testament, but maybe other than the Psalms and Proverbs, we never open the Old Testament. We don't even know what the Old Testament is, right? Or we read books with characters and plots or topics that we can easily identify with because they feel like good stories that we can learn and understand and maybe teach to our kids. The problem with that approach is that we know that all, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. All of it is. And you can't fully appreciate the sweetness of the New Testament without the sort of the savory, she says, of the Old Testament. So we need a, a balanced diet to grow to maturity. And then finally, she lays out this final approach. She calls it the Xanax approach. Feeling anxious? Well, Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Feeling ugly? Psalm 139 says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Feel tired? Well, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Jesus will give rest to the weary. The Xanax approach treats the Bible as if it exists to simply make us feel better. And so what happens is we pronounce our time in the word successful if we can say, wow, that was so touching. And here's the problem with that. The problem is the Xanax approach makes the Bible a book about us. We ask how the Bible can serve us rather than how we can serve the God that it clearly proclaims. Actually, the, the Bible doesn't really make us feel much better. Quite often, it does just the opposite, right? So if you're ever feeling awesome, you know, read Jeremiah 17, 9, because it'll tell you that you are a wicked rascal, right? <laughs> so the Bible doesn't always just tell us what we want to hear to prop up our egos and make us feel exactly how we want to feel. What Jen Wilkin is driving at is that we treat the Bible in a lot of ways as a spiritual multivitamin. Now, look, I'm getting older, and I take a multivitamin every morning because I, I guess I'm old, right? I just said it. The problem is that never once have I gotten all psyched about the vitamin, right? Or developed an affection for the pharmacist. Never once, right? I only take it for what it can do for me. And for many of us, the Bible is a book that we use as a self-help guide to the universe when our universe starts to spiral out of control and go a little bonkers. But what we must understand is that the Bible needs to be read and understood for what it actually is. It's God's story. It's God's story of how he created the world, how his creation rebelled against him, and how he sent his son to redeem this rebellious creation, and how someday he will restore creation back to its intended glory. And so what we call this, what this is known as, is God's grand redemptive narrative, or like our, our series title says, One Story, One Savior. You guys know what it's like to, to lock into a redemptive story that you like. It's why, it's why we like movies 
It's why we read books. If you want to watch a bunch of bad redemptive stories right now, then just click on the Hallmark channel for the next 23 days. Right? But you're going, to see a, you're going to see a thread, right? You're going to see a thread where everything starts and it's great. And then everything goes wrong. And then a hero comes to save the day with a really questionable sweater on. Right? And then everything kind of goes back or starts moving forward toward the desired outcome that they originally wanted. That would just be a redemptive story. We're drawn to that. We like to see that the things that go bad eventually get good again. It's in our very nature to desire that and to long for that. Here's what a guy named John Frame, he's a, just a, a smart guy theologian. This is what he said about redemptive history. He said, Redemptive history is that series of events by which God redeems his people from sin, and it's a narrative that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. This is what he says. He says, it is the principal subject matter of all of Scripture. Now, what I would add to that is that, again, much less eloquently than John Frame, is that Scripture contains all of the most mattering things that pertain to life, your godliness, your happiness, your value, your worth, and all that you were created to be before God and others. And so when we get to Genesis, Genesis stages this first act, so to speak, in God's unfolding, unfolding drama of redemption. Now, typically what happens whenever Genesis comes up or whenever we start a study in Genesis is we immediately start discussing and dissecting how long it took for God to create the world, we start engaging in debates and discussions about how Genesis should be interpreted. Now, listen, there, there's a place for that. I'm not knocking that. Don't send me a bunch of emails saying, Ron, you don't care about what God's trying to teach us through Genesis. That's not what I'm saying, but it's not where we're going today, okay? In fact, I'm a guy named Willem Van Gammeren. I've been looking forward to saying that all week. Willem Van Gammeren. This is what he says about Genesis, and this is kind of our, our take from it today. He says, Genesis is more concerned with God the creator than with the time or details of his creation. That's going to hit some of you guys, right? Because you've only ever gone through Genesis and it's just gotten just crazy with like the day, day one, day two, and the, you know how God created everything and the, the amount of time it took. And how some people think it took this amount of time and some people think it took this amount of time that we're just not going there because what we want to do is we want to sort of bathe and bask, not just in the way that God did it, but that God did it, Right? We're going to take an incredibly brief look, actually, at Genesis as the opening act of God's divine drama. Here's our objective, okay? To trace the hand of God so that God becomes more treasured in our heart. Let me say that again. This is all we're going to do today. We want to trace the hand of God so that God becomes more treasured in our heart. We don't want to miss the awe and the wonder of a God who spoke light into existence. We don't want to lose our astonishment for a God who creates all things from nothing, who was at the beginning of our beginning because he had no beginning. This brings light to our minds, and it brings love to our hearts for God. So I'm going to read the first five verses here in Genesis chapter 1. If you want to follow along with me, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. 
And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So our first point that I'm going to make for us this morning is simply this. God created all things. As we start to understand the unfolding of God's divine drama, his one story, what we learn from the very beginning, from the first word, is that God created all things. In the beginning, what? What does it say? In the beginning, Oh my gosh, it's like you guys don't even, it's like I'm up here not even talking. In the beginning, oh my gosh, yes, that was better. In the beginning, God, that's what it says, God's story. Who does it begin with? It begins with God. Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore today, this is Moses talking to the people, and lay it to your heart that the Lord God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. This is what he says, there is no other. That's it. God's story begins with the triune God speaking all things into existence by the unfathomable, because we can't fathom it, power of his spoken word. Everything that exists comes into existence. Why? Because God spoke. This is not the magic or sleight of hand of God. God's not an illusionist. We are, because we don't possess God-like power. Seriously. Take a walk today and say something and see what happens. Not exciting enough? All right, tell your spouse to do something and see what happens. Not exciting enough? Tell your kid to do something and see what happens. You see the absurdity of even just the baseline level of arrogance that we possess in ourselves, thinking that our words have power. They have a particular kind of power, but it's typically negative. That's for another sermon. God creates because he existed before creation was even created. Our story has a beginning, and yet this is not where God began at all. Why? Because he already was. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We don't comprehend that. We just believe it. So how does this change then how people view the world and themselves? How does this change how we view the world and ourselves? Well, it fills us with, with awe. It's meant to fill us with awe. It's meant to infuse us with a uniquely divine hope. Because suddenly we're confronted Right when we open Genesis 1 with a creator God whose very words brought universes and worlds into being. And you know what it does? It does something we don't like. It shrinks us down in the best possible way, right? It takes foolish ideas like you can do whatever you put your mind to and reminds us that our very existence is held together by a God that has called all things into existence, and has called all things that exist to do what? To worship him. So creation puts us, the created, in our right place. If you go to the book of Job, Job has this conversation with God um, that is just phenomenal. If you ever go to Job chapter 38, God asks Job this question. He says, where were you, dude, when I laid the foundation of the earth. And what that was meant to do was put Job in a particular place that says, I don't even know who I'm talking to right now. 
Like, who is this that I'm talking to who literally asks me, Joe, by the way, where were you when I was like hammering out the foundations of the earth? It's an absurd question. But he asked Job that. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. We just skip over those words like, yeah, eternal power, divine nature, past the sugar, right? But it says they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It doesn't take a lot to see that we're serving a God that spoke everything into existence. Look at a flower sometime and just look at it and reflect on it and let your eyes just go over it and look at the intricacies of the matter and the design and the color and the art. We don't got that. We recreate those things. We have no power to create those things. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you, it says, created all things. And by your will, they existed and they were created. Now, does this make God the greatest cosmic narcissist of all time? That he created everything so that everything would give him glory, including us, the pinnacle of his creation? No. Not if the very thing that would give his created beings their greatest joy and fulfillment was when they worship the object of all joy and fulfillment. It makes him actually the most kind, loving God. Because if the very thing that gives us what we most deeply long for, and it happens to be him, everything that he does to point back to himself is the very thing that he's going to do in our lives to give us the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, the greatest fulfillment. That's why God is so jealous for his glory. That's why God is so jealous to be worshipped above all other things. Jonathan Edwards, an old theologian um, from the 18th century, said, the only reason God would have had for creating us was not to get the cosmic love and joy of relationships. Sometimes, maybe some of you guys grew up and said, God created us because he was lonely. Well, it's not true. Because he already had that in the Trinity. He wasn't lonely. He had the Son and the Holy Spirit. But Jonathan Edwards says that the reason God would have had for creating us was to share, was to share with us. So to mimic something that he experiences with the Son and the Holy Spirit, he now gives to us in a way to experience that kind of joy and that kind of relationship. So why does believing that matter? Why does believing that God created all things? Why on earth does that matter to you? Why does that matter to me? Because when things seem overwhelming, okay? Now remember what we're just, we just read five verses into. Remember God speaking light into existence, speaking the first day into existence. Now let's bring it back to us and think about things that seem overwhelming to us. Well, in those moments, we can remember that there's one person who is impossible to overwhelm. And some of you are massively overwhelmed today. I'm kind of overwhelmed. Some of us are overwhelmed. Part of it is because we don't trace God's hand. 
and we don't make it a practice to trace God's hand in everything, then we don't trace and trust his heart in everything. So then what happens is you start believing that you now are the one writing the narrative for your own life. You know what happens? You break, you break often. Because again, you are not tracing the hand of God and learning to trust his heart. God created all things. That's a hopeful thing. And in fact, it is the hopeful thing too. Everything God created was good. If you go to verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31, God reflects on his creation. He takes a moment and everything it says that God created was good. Another word for good here is agreeable. So what God originally created was agreeable with his nature, his character, and all that he is is a holy, a sovereign, and a happy God. This tells us something about the condition of things as they were first created, which is that they came uncorrupted. They came uncorrupted by sin. Everything was spoken from and into a state of perfection. Why? Because God would be unable to create anything other than that. So seeing God declare his creation good tells us something, doesn't it? About God's character and about God's intention. And this is important because as we'll see next week, sin, you know what we're doing when we're sinning? Well, we're doing a lot of things. But one of the chief things that we do when we sin is we are calling God's goodness into question. Eve was calling God's goodness into question. Adam was calling God's goodness into question. Psalm 86.5 reminds us, the psalmist says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. James, the brother of Jesus, in his book reminds us, he says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, coming from God, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So you know that you're never getting a, a bum deal from God. Everything that God gives you, even when it feels like it's a negative thing, if it's coming from God's hand, it's not. Now, God is not the author of evil. We know that. But when he allows certain things, certain variations to happen in our life, it's not because he's changing, but he's allowing things so that we change and we become more conformed to his image. So what this allows us to understand is something really important for life, which is that God doesn't simply do good things. He doesn't simply create good things. He doesn't simply declare things good. He is good. He is the embodiment of good. Someday when you look at Jesus and you can see him face to face, one of the things you're going to say, one of the things that's just going to come flooding out of your mouth is that you are good. You are good. He is why we know how to define what is good. Or else, man, we'd have, a, we'd have an interesting, we'd have a dis, interesting uh, you know, dictionary with terms of what we really think is good if we didn't have, it, have God's word to base on what is good. Psalm 119 says, you are good and do good. The psalmist says, teach me your statutes. So spiritual maturity, which is what we're all aiming for here, is learning God's goodness so that we better believe that God's word is truth and everything he says, everything he asks us to obey is out of his goodness so that we are conformed 
to his likeness. So let's ask the question, why does knowing that God made everything good matter? Well, it matters because when we look at the state of the world, listen, and are tempted to call God's goodness into question, we can remember that originally he declared all things good. Not only that, but when good things have gone bad and we wonder why he doesn't intervene, where are you, God? I needed help pronto and you're still absent. I need stat kind of help and you're not around. But we can remember this. Somebody who is good beyond our comprehension and is fiercely committed to his glory will be working for an eventual good that we could only know if we were God. You know what this does? When we believe that, when we preach that to ourselves, when we remind one another of that, it leads us away from despair. It leads us away from disbelief. It leads us away from the wrong kind of disillusionment in the wrong things. So God created all things. Everything God created was good in this divine drama. And then three, God created us to bear his goodness. Let's go to verse 26. This is what happens when God gets to creating us. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The pinnacle of God's first act in his grand narrative was creating man and woman in his own image. This is what's called the Imago Dei, we call this, or the image of God. So God created us to be like him in the sense that we are now moral agents who have a mind and a heart and a will. And so because of this, we're able to mirror God's holiness. We're able to reflect his character. Don't let that just wash over you so quickly. And not only that, but God gave us this unique privilege to have dominion over all of the earth, to rule over it as what's called his vice regents. Look what it says in verse 29. God commands Adam and Eve. He says, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. You go back to 28. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. This is what's called God's cultural mandate for mankind. So as God's reflective image bearers of his glory, we obediently now, we fill the earth for the flourishing of the human race. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 8, he's just astounded by this. He writes this, he says, You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, and yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hand. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist is saying, you did this, you gave us this. It's a beautiful privilege. It's an astounding responsibility. It's something that you didn't have to do, but in your goodness, 
You gave us this. So why does that matter? Why does being created in the image of God matter so much for us? Well, because of the fall, which we're going to read about next week, all of us has a measure of fear now and guilt now and shame now that is due to a lot of things, right? It's due to things like family of origin. It's due to previous wounds that have been inflicted on you. It's due to ways that you have been sinned against. It's due to the ways that uh, the sin patterns that were modeled to you from your parents and from authority figures in your life. So knowing that we've been made in the image of God, it reminds us that our value and worth comes from not all of those things that threaten to put a particular identity on us that's not true once we walk with Christ. But we understand now that our identity and our value and our worth comes from our creator of whose image we bear. Because here's the reality. Our hearts are like identification magnets, right? And we are drawn to things, people, and traumatic events that want to shape who we really are. Genesis tells us who we really are. So as image bearers now, it means we bear the character and the qualities of God because we're made after his likeness. Now, that image has been marred. That image has been distorted by sin, but it has not been erased completely. Now, some of you guys remember that we used to have these things called photo albums, right? And there were these paper things where you took pictures and you got them developed and you put these paper pictures in a book to sort of make memories of, you know, all the things that your family did through the years. You guys are totally all blank-faced right now. That's why I'm explaining it to you. Um, so what would happen is in these photo albums is that as the years would go on, the photos would like lose their coloring, they'd get scratched, the edges would bend up. But here's the thing, you could still see the image. Like when I open up a photo book that my mom put together, like I still see me and my brother like taking a bath. There, I just threw it out there, right? Like I still see that image. It's still there. You guys are in shock right now. Um, we were four. Um, but that image is still you. It's marred, it's distorted, but the image of God is still imprinted on human beings, and that is significant. It's significant that we're made in the image of God and in the likeness of God, and that's why things like racism and ageism and violence in our neighborhoods and oppression in our home and hate for those who are of a different racial or socioeconomic status is so against everything God is. Do you guys get that? Because every human bears the imprint of God on them. So even whether God is acknowledged as creator or not, right? Our longing, this natural sense of longing for peace and wanting justice and restoration, it's intrinsic. And not only that, but it's something that is clearly perceived in all of us. We know that it's true, we know that it's right, and we know that it's what we desire. That's why we feel empathy. That's why we feel a loss of dignity when we see things happen to us and to others. We feel that deeply. That's why we have a passion for justice for ourselves and others. God's character is known whether we know God or not. Romans 1.20 says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly perceive ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We are without excuse whether we acknowledge God as anything. 
Paul goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we try to push God out of the equation. We try to trample on him. We try to say, no, 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 no. We are the masters of our own destiny. We are the builders of our future. We are the originators. Well, that's all great and good, but how does that explain our need for justice and restoration and our longing for dignity? Because I'll tell you what, the animal kingdom doesn't share that at all. That's a whole other thing we can spend much time on. God created everything. Everything God created was good. God created us to bear his goodness. And then finally, God's image-bearing son restores these good things and this good image that has been marred by sin. So this is how the one story leads to the one savior and allows us to trace God's hand in such a way that we treasure his heart. God's image-bearing son restores this marred image. The creation of the world was carried out, in fact, by this thing that we call the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, one God and three persons. So in the beginning, God created through God the Son, while the Spirit's presence gave life to what God created. So this Trinity, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relationship is what gave us our image-bearing identity. And it's also the reason why Jesus was the only one that could come someday and restore our image. Colossians 1.15, Paul tells us, he is the image, talking about Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things, get that, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this one divine drama that God is writing and creating, it all comes back to the gospel. It all comes back to Jesus, the word made flesh. And this is how Paul finishes it. He says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the pinnacle of God's story comes in the image of Jesus Christ. So this unfolding of God's divine drama, this grand redemptive narrative, this one story was always about Jesus, this one Savior. And then Colossians 1 goes on to say this, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're going to get a little more into that next week. But this one story, this is how it comes down and then explodes like the fireworks from the tree lighting last night into the one Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to restore our image. So let me finish with this. 
What is this narrative, God's grand narrative, just the beginnings of it? What does it remind us of? Well, one thing here. It reminds us that God created everything with order and purpose. God created everything with order and purpose. So when everything is out of order for you, and there are some of you of which everything is so out of order, but when everything is out of order and in chaos, we can remember that in the beginning God created everything good. So here's what we do. Listen, all right? We reframe the question. You guys are going to know this question, but we reframe it. The question is this. If God is good, why do bad things happen? It's just the wrong question, given everything that we just learned. So we reframe that question. It's not if God is good, why do bad things happen? It's why is God so good even though we are such rebellious sinners? Why is he still so good? Why are you sitting here unpunished for the sins that you committed this morning? Why am I allowed to be on a stage right now given the argument I had with my wife yesterday about something that I need to go back to her and repent of? Why am I allowed to break God's laws and still live and still eat a lot of cake and still have friendships and relationships? Why do I still get these blessings? Do you guys get what I'm saying? Why do we still get to breathe? Why have I even been given the 48, I know it's shocking, 48 years that I even have right now? Why was I even given one day of that? Because God is good. Because God is good. This is hopeful thinking. Do you see what I'm saying? This is hopeful thinking. Because it brings us back to what we know about God, which is that nothing he does is flippant. Do you guys get that? We say things all the time like, yeah, I don't know why I did that. Or I don't understand why this happened. Or I have no clue why this is not working, which is like every home improvement project that I actually don't, don't even do anymore. These are all thoughts that God never has. Sin creates disorder. But listen, it does not and cannot dismantle the plan and purpose of God. So God's grand narrative reminds us that God created everything with order and purpose, even when our lives don't feel like they have any. And then finally, it reminds us to stop trying to be the authors of our own story. Stop trying to write your own narrative. Recognize it when you're doing it. When all the anxiety and the worry and the stress is bearing down on you. There's some legitimate reasons for that happening. But when we cling to that, when that becomes who we are, what it is, is that we're trying to write our own narrative. Instead, enter into the story that God wrote you in before the foundation of the world when Christ saved you. In the words of Eugene Peterson, eat this book. Eat this book. Drink its words. Breathe in its grace. Soak in its mercy. Love its writer. Do you guys hear me? It's not the story itself, but the writer himself who is sharing the hope of his words that will never pass away. Yes, all of creation is groaning right now, us included. And so what do we do? We wait. We wait for the hope 
of glory that will someday be revealed to all who love the writer of this grand story. And then we turn to our neighbor and we say, can I help you remember that too? Because I've been writing my own narrative and it appears that you have been too. But there's a bigger story. There's a a greater narrative that is happening. And we are included in it by the richness of God's grace and mercy. And in that we can rejoice. Let's pray. God, thank you for writing this story of our lives, this grand narrative, Lord, that begins with you and it ends with you. And in the middle is evidence of all the ways that you are working to bring everything back to restoration, to bring everything back to the place in which everything began, Lord, which was having peace with God. So God, we understand that we so often are the narrators and the writers of our own story. It's foolishness. And so God, we repent to you for that. We also remember that you created us out of love and out of kindness. And so God, we want to remember that when things in our life happens, when things happen in our lives that are against us, when we have been wounded, when we have been sinned against, God, we can remember that as image bearers, someday you are going to restore all of these things. Someday we are going to know what justice is. Someday our longings and our desires for peace and for restoration are going to be fulfilled. And we know it's true because we look and we read through Genesis and we get a glimpse of how you made everything in the beginning And someday you will make all things new again. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.